Hello, everybody, and welcome to Writing the Rapids, the show where writers come on, talk about writing, and then tell me what other writers should be on the show. This month, we have Autumn Christian. She's written a couple books like The Crooked God Machine, We Are Wormwood, and Ecstatic Inferno. Her book, Girl Like a Bomb, is previewed at the end of this episode and is either coming out very soon or has just come out depending on whether or not you subscribe to my Patreon. Speaking of which, if you want to, you can. Patreon.com slash WTR for... A very little bit of money, you get episodes early. When I start doing bonus content, you'll get bonus content. And you help me fund the show, do more shows more frequently, and so on. If not, I made this free in the first place for a reason. I had a really fun time with Autumn, so I'm going to stop talking now and just get into the interview now. One of the things I don't do is start with like a big question at the beginning of the episode so i'm going to do that with you and i'm going to start with just the the big old open-ended why do you write why do i write mm-hmm. god i hate that question <laughs> Great start. Um, <laughs> um it was just sort of i started writing when i was basically when I was able to start understanding letters. I don't think it was ever something I consciously decided to do. And then after a while, it sort of like forms like almost like a crustacean like shell like around your personality. So like after a certain point, I kind of stopped asking myself that question because it was like, it almost, (laughs) it almost seemed irrelevant in the sense that like, it's just something to do in like, a universe that feels like an empty void Mm. does that make any sense yes but yeah i i think i think sometimes the best answer to that question is just yes why do you write (laughs) yes that is exactly (laughs) it yeah i don't really have any like super profound reason for that i suppose I, i think that's kind of the best way to go about it um man because then you don't put any pressure on yourself. You're writing because you're writing and it feels good to write as opposed to like, I I started writing because I wanted to illuminate the human condition in, this, in these troubled times. Like, oh man. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. I feel like, because I remember um, I started out writing horror. So like I would see like the paperbacks in Barnes and Noble and I'm like, oh, those look really cool. Like I want to write one of those. Like I was never one of those people who was like, I will be the next Shakespeare or whatever. But yeah, you're right. Like it does put a lot of uh, pressure onto people, I think, because they feel like they have to do something important for the human race. Yeah, I I know that especially lately, a lot of the people I've talked to recently or people I've looked into talking to have talked a lot about like, yeah, we need more subversive literature. We need to have writing as resistance. And I always feel kind of bad about that because my writing is so uh, like internal to like one person's experience. And like maybe that is relatable and maybe not. And so like writing something that's supposed to be like part of a movement uh, a fictionalized manifesto of sorts seems daunting 
That's interesting to me because I guess <clears throat> I always think of like a book is supposed to be like not 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 maybe like your personal experience, but like a personal experience, and like that's what art is, and that's kind of what separates it from a thing that's just like an ideology. Like I guess you have things like Animal Farm, like that are sort of like ushering in, are like trying to dissect a movement. But um, I don't know. I have noticed before that. Or I have noticed recently that um, there is more like politicization and sort of like uh, these works have to be like important in like beyond the scope of just like having an experience with like the reader. Yeah, I, I remember when Donald Trump got elected, Vice had like six articles a day about how punk rock is about to come back. Now. <laughs> yeah, I remember that. I'm still waiting. Maybe it has. I, I'm not like a, a big punk person. Yeah, I mean, I haven't seen it. You know, <laughs> uh, I, I've noticed, and maybe it's just me, because at, at about the same time I got on Instagram and like... I don't know how exactly it happened, but my explore tab on Instagram is like all socialism memes at this point. So, <laughs> so maybe there is resistance somewhere, but uh, I don't know. At the same time, though, um, "Girl Like a Bomb." We're talking about this before it comes out, but most people will hear it uh, after it comes out. Um, so, I don't want to spoil too much, but like. One of the things I noticed is that it, it covered a lot of issues um, that are generally covered, um, but it doesn't necessarily dissect into all of them. Um, near the end, there's several mentions of Bev like checking her Instagram or posting things on Instagram that feel patently untrue and shilling for skinny tees and whatnot. <laughs> um, and I thought it was great to like put it in there um, without having a, like a treatise on, you know, being an Instagram model. That's interesting. I have to think about that for a second. Okay. Um, yeah, cause I've had a few people tell me, um, they think the book is about certain things. Like it's either like about body positivity or like sex positivity, which is like, those are good things um but like it was never really my intention to write a book that was like toward a particular ideology like it was all just about this one girl like essentially trying to figure out what life is about and I think <clears throat> like it touches on all those things it's like yeah you do have to like interface with Instagram and like in in her she does not everybody <laughs> has to um and sort of like touching upon all those different things and like people wanting like things from you and then wanting you to be the face of like their movement so yeah it never really goes into like I really hate like being didactic in the sense of like um telling people like how to feel about a thing I just kind of like to put it out there and then they can sort through it I like that I, I guess it kind of kind of goes back to the whole thing of like not putting undue pressure on yourself especially if i mean like i feel that the book really really touches on a lot of different things that i see being touched on in in literature um and gives a pretty clear 
sort of opinion on some things or at least suggests things that are fairly clear um such as certain characters killing themselves after uh she gives them her gift right like oh man so this universe is like fairly deterministic because like you're either supposed to you're either like good in the world or you're not is an interesting thing that's interesting because man is it (laughs) now i have to think about Mm -hmm. that because i was like when i was writing um yeah i guess i don't want to give too much away but the scenes in which like the people determine like i I guess for the people listening and who don't know what this book is about um it's about like a young woman who finds that when she has sex with people um she can they become the best versions of themselves essentially um because she has this gift that she transfers to them in the course of the book there are some people who have determined the best versions of themselves is to kill themselves um and i don't think that that was like when i was thinking of that it wasn't that like the universe had determined whether they were good or bad it was more like if you become these things um it's because like the internal mechanisms inside of you are like broken so in the sense that's like once you realize like who you are and like the best version of yourself is like to remove yourself that's kind of like my thought process with that okay that makes sense too because part of me is thinking like oh these certain people have a decent amount of power why don't they just turn it around um but i guess if it's like it doesn't seem like like the the gift adds anything new it just strips away some of the distractions yeah um because like the whole idea wasn't because like that was a complicated thing to write about because it was like what is better and i didn't want to i didn't want to um tell people like this is this is the best version of like a person Mm -hmm. like this is this is the ideal because i don't think i have that authority so it was more like who it was in the sense of like who does this person want to be and like what are the barriers that they have created themselves from being that person and that was essentially what it was meant to do Hmm. Um, because there's a scene like kind of I guess in the middle of the book where it's like um, she has an appointment with a man who's bringing his wife and she's like I want you to fix my wife but what he what people believe is fixing someone isn't always necessarily like what they're going to be because people have a certain idea of like what they want and then there's also a certain idea of like this is the best thing for that person it can be completely different yeah i i mean i i think that all folds into this speculative fiction thing that uh, that writers and, and screenwriters and directors run into, which is like defining rules for your your thing, right? Mm-hmm. Like either the monster or the, the virus or, or whatever. Um, and I think, I feel like you did a really good job at um, defining the rules where they needed to be defined and not defining them where they don't need to be defined. Uh, I, I say that because in my head, like, I have a pretty clear idea of, like, what exactly it is, but I feel like as soon as I try to articulate it, I start, 
uh, start getting into muddy waters. Yeah, no, that makes total sense. Um, it's kind of a weird, I feel like it's kind of a weird concept in the sense of like, oh, uh, there's a woman, she has sex with people and they become better. It's like, well, what is better? And like, how does the mechanisms work? Because I actually did have this like, (laughs) like 7,000 page, like, or not page, 7,000 word chat, like chapter that was like about her going to a doctor. Cause I mentioned like she goes to a doctor and then I was just like, I don't need this. Like, I don't need her like sitting there in like an exam room, like figuring out the specifics of like how it works. I don't think that's like relevant to what's happening. Yeah. I feel like that would push it into the bounds of like weird fiction. That sort of like Lovecraft Ligotti sort of like, we're gonna we're gonna sit down and we're gonna use some science as science. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's just unnecessary. I don't know. I think a lot of times, I know I know that the, some writers are different. Like especially like hard sci-fi, like they want to know like exactly how everything works, and I just don't care because um, it never feels super relevant because it's like the thing that's happening is supposed to be like the vehicle for the idea. So like I don't need to like tear apart how the actual thing works all the time absolutely i feel like the best hard science fiction is the stuff i think of after half reading a, a uh, an article about actual like science and actual like breakthroughs <laughs> like oh yeah elon musk made an engine that can go twice as fast as the other spaceship engines and i'm like oh great i know what that means now like i'm gonna <laughs> i'm on the first boat out i'm gonna live on mars that's great <laughs> I think we all want to live on Mars now. We're all... <laughs> Get us out of here. We, we got to find that little Mars rover and recharge his batteries. I know. I think everyone, like, everyone's mourning for that poor robot. <laughs> we'll never forget you. Uh, the, the other thing I noticed, uh, thinking about like a, a giant passage about explaining the rules and how it works, is the, the book read really fast. Um I'm not the fastest reader. It probably should have taken me about a week to, to read it because it's, what, 260 pages? So that's, I don't know. That's Something like that, yeah. Yeah, that usually takes me about a week because I tend to read after I get home from my first or second job and then I fall asleep 10 pages into it. And this was not the case. Uh, I think I read it in like three days, which is exceptionally fast for me. Um, and so part of it, I think, is the the pacing of the book makes it so that there's never really a good place to put it down. And the other part is I just really enjoyed it, which is useful, too. Well, both of those are, are good things to know. <laughs> <laughs> um, so was that, was the pacing of the book, the sort of like speed at which it moves, uh, important to you as you were writing it or editing it? I don't really think of it as like a fast pace, but I don't, I try to cut out all the boring parts. Um, My ultimate goal is like, I want somebody to open up a book that I wrote and like every sentence it's like, oh, I like, I want to read this. Like, I don't want, so I think what, what happens that ends up cutting it down. So it is like fast paced just as a consequence of that. I can see that. I'm trying to compare it to um, The Sellout by Paul Beatty, which I recently read and is like the most recent thing before uh, your work that I started re- reading, I think. 
Uh, someone's going to go on Goodreads and fact check me and call me a liar now. But <laughs> but uh, like they're always watching, waiting for you to slip up. That that was like 270 pages or something. It was a little bit longer, and it had these like world building type uh, tangents or or flashbacks that uh, your book doesn't really have. And I think that's part of it, where it's like it is always, always, always just moving forward with only like little like thoughts like fleeting thoughts to friends she had back in the day or whatever yeah sorry what were you gonna say um i think that was my thought i think i think the reason it feels fast in addition to to what you said is is just sort of the way that the timeline moves which is to say always forward uh, there's no diagonal movement or, or, or flashbacks or anything trying to remember this book <laughs> I know it was by Dan Simmons I can't I think it was uh... okay it was Ilium by Dan Simmons when I read that book um... now that I think about it it's pretty pretty dense but i think most of the stuff he writes is pretty dense but like the way that he builds the world was like really interesting to me because like he just kind of like throws you into it like he never goes back and like starts explaining it like so like you kind of discover the world so that by the like middle of the book like you know what things mean but it's only like because of context um so i always really like that because i hate I hate those tangents that are just like that are I don't know it, it always felt to me like kind of talking to the reader like almost like they were a child but it's like as a person in that world you're not gonna like step back and be like and this is how this thing I use every day works because it's like okay we all know what a microwave is in the sense of like we're not gonna step back it's like and then this is how you heat the food and you have to press these buttons and about 60 seconds later and it's like that's ridiculous but like through the context of it, it of some kind of world that we don't really understand, we can infer like what the thing does. So I always thought that the way uh, Dan Simmons did that was like really masterful. Hmm. I haven't read that one. That kind of makes me think of uh, Weave World by Clive Barker. Sort of did that. Uh, I don't think I've read that one by him. Okay. It's 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 fairly long. It's it's nice magical realism. It's the only two things I've read by Clive Barker are decidedly not his body horror stuff, which is why I like Clive Barker. <laughs> so, you're not a you're not a fan of the body horror stuff. Oh, I love the body horror stuff. So oh, you do. Yeah, I've I read Weave World, which is fairly magical realism, and then um, Imagica, which is like urban fantasy, sort of. And they were both good. They were both very long. And the reason why I didn't re meet my reading goal uh, last year. <laughs> oh, the Goodreads challenge? Yeah. Man, fuck the Goodreads challenge. <laughs> so I'm, I'm so over it. I just like, I'm like, man, this is something I'm supposed to be doing for fun. And now I'm just like min-maxing my pages. Like, <laughs> fuck this. <laughs> I like that. I, I tend to use it with my wife as a way to gamify our relationship even a little bit more <laughs> it's like oh man you've only read six books this year what's up what's up i'm on book 11 
And she's like, I haven't, oh, all the books I started reading, I've stopped halfway through because I don't like them. And I'm like, I know exactly what I like in a book. <laughs> uh, so I can feel that totally. The other thing is that like only in the past two years have I started reading a lot, a lot. And like only since college have I really like made an effort to, to eat books. And so that's that's a useful thing. But I suppose if that's just like part of you anyway, if that's part of your leisure to to pick up a book rather than to go onto YouTube, then eh, it's a mix. <laughs> I'm a gamer too, so I have to like cycle through. Yeah, uh, I remember listening to Get Lit with Lisa, and you were talking about that. What are you What are you playing right now? Oh god, I don't even want to tell you. It's um <laughs> line- it's lineage 2. It's like a Oh okay. a really old Korean MMO. It's a terrible game. Please don't play it whoever's listening. <laughs> I I wanted to play lineage 2 a whole bunch uh when I was young and it was I always had these fights with my brother. He was 2 years older than me. Uh since we were young and the computer was a foreign thing to really everybody in the family. It was like, okay, mom and dad said we can buy one game. What are we going to buy? Are we going to buy Morrowind or are we going to buy The Sims 2? <laughs> and for some reason, we got The Sims 2, which is, you know, a fine game in its own right, but decidedly not Morrowind. That's true. <laughs> so is Lineage 2 still active? So, yeah. So what happened is... um. When they went free to play like a couple years ago, um, it kind of ruined the game because it was uh, essentially pay to win. They had apparently these like thousands of dollar weapons and stuff. Mm. Uh, but then they got a new server, which is the classic server, which is like kind of freemium, but like kind of like old school. So I've been playing that. Okay. Because it, yeah, because the the normal server is just totally ruined. <laughs> That's similar to what I am doing with RuneScape now that they ported the 2007 version of RuneScape onto iPhones and tablets. Oh, they did? I didn't know that. Oh, yep, they have, and it's awful. (laughs) But I I also will make no judgments on the quality of games played because I spend most of my time during the day with my phone on playing, like, uh, Tap Titans 2, which is just one of those clicker games. And, oh yeah yeah i know what you're talking about yeah my my brother is really into idle games for some reason i think it's just because he likes numbers he's an engineer he's a chemical engineer so he just i don't even know what he does all day it's something with latex and it's not sexy at all like latex normally is <laughs> and he's like yeah so I, I i made a spreadsheet about this game and here I, I figured out the algorithms just by taking notes great man all right um yeah, I yeah. To a lot of people, that's like the fun of it. I'm not a min maxer, but like, I'm really industrious. So like, if if it feels like work, if it's like a grind, like I like doing it because mm. <laughs> it's just like, it feels like I'm working, even though I'm just sitting there and playing a game. <laughs> sure, I get that too. I mean, I like I said, I've spent a lot of time in in RuneScape and playing clicker games. Uh, it sort <laughs> sort of reminds me of Eve Online as well, which is like actually a job. Uh, I've never, yeah, I, I've never played that one just because, like, I'm scared. <laughs> well, it's terrifying. 
I the only reason I keep it installed on my computer is because of the soundtrack. Like the the songs that have been in that game since it started are just beautiful and I can't find them anywhere else. So I'll just open the game and start music playing. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I've heard some stories about Eve Online. It's it's kind of like a a life commitment thing. Mhm. From what I've heard. I was watching videos, and it's like, the most powerful man in the game doesn't even log in to play anymore. <laughs> he just sits in Discord and screams at people who actually do play the game. He just screams at people? Is he just, like, telling people how to play? Or He's, what? like, the head of the corporation, which I, I imagine there's... It's, like, the guild system in the game, and he's the head of it, and so he's just, like getting status reports from different galaxies and and <laughs> saying, all right, we need this battalion to go in here and we're going to skirmish with them. And then he goes on Reddit and like dummy accounts and tries to stir up trouble with other corporations so that they get weakened so that they can go into the sector. And oh my God. Yeah. It gets crazy. <laughs> it, yeah. It's too much. I, once every other year or so, I'm like, this is it. I'm going to figure out how to make it so that I can play this. And I never do. I don't have that kind of time or commitment in my life. Um, the The other thing that uh, I think is interesting is that you've done writing and design for games too. Yeah. Um, how did that come about? Purely by accident. Uh, my dad is a game programmer. He worked for THQ for a long time. Mm. Forget the last game he made. What was it? It was some racing game, and I can't remember the name of it, but that's irrelevant. Um, so he ended up starting his own company, and I was living in Austin. He was like, hey, do you want to do some writing for a game? It was called Trouble in Tin Town. It was one of the most ridiculous things I've ever done. It, like... I know you were just talking about Lisa, like, with Bizarro. Like, this was, like, basically, like, a Bizarro video game, like, not even knowing what that genre was. Like, there was four different fact... No, there's Yeah, four factions. Uh, one of them was, like, dinosaurs. The other one was, like, candy, like, cupcakes and stuff, like, but anthropomorphic. Uh, and then the other one was robots. And then there was the historicals. So it was, like, Abraham Lincoln, Edgar Allan Poe, stuff like that. Uh, and then they were all like at war with each other. So I'm, I wrote the script, I wrote the script for that. It had some really bad humor in it. It was just, there was some good parts, but, um, I wrote that. I thought I was done with it. And then he was like, uh, we don't have anyone who needs, who can like, we don't have the time to implement this stuff. So like, can you come down here and like implement, which is basically, um, I don't know how to explain it. Implementation is not it's not coding, but it's like kind of it's like the design of like taking all the raw materials and like actually putting them in the game, like making the maps and like balancing the characters so that everything like f flows, and then like actually creating the characters out of the raw data and stuff like that, which is essentially design. Um, so yeah, I did that. I thought I was done with it. Um, but then I got a video game testing job and then that kind of transitioned into like design because they were looking for a junior designer 
And they were like, oh, you've done design work before. Uh, so then I ended up doing that for a couple of years. Um, it was all kind of by accident, though. I think I think that's the best way to, to fall into things. Uh, my wife has got a job doing web design by accident kind of as well. And it's fun to watch her learn JavaScript and CSS and stuff like that. Especially as like a, a, a fellow creative person, writer, like figuring out the sort of logic behind things. Do, do you find that, that working on games has helped your writing or changed it at all? Yes, in the sense that, um, so I don't really miss, like, the day-to-day of, like, working on video games in the sense of, like, the last game I was working on, I I wasn't super excited to be working on it. It was just, like, a mobile game that wasn't super inspired. Mm. I'm trying to choose my words carefully. (laughs) Um, But, um... It was mostly, like, working in a team and, like, doing creative stuff together and, like, being a part of a, like, a design team was always really fun because one thing that I had figured out was that, like, we needed to just, in order to come up with, like, creative stuff, we needed to just spend some time, like, bullshitting. Like, we had our own chat room and we would just talk about the most ridiculous shit, but, like, uh, that would actually start to form into, like, the characters we were doing and, like the cool stuff that like came out of that. So I was like, it was interesting to learn like how much you need to like slack off, like in quotes, just to like make something cool. Um, and also just like the way that everything, what is it? I learned agile when, and then, um, are you familiar with agile? Not yet. Okay. Um, it's just like a, a workflow thing um and i learned how to do that and i actually started like looking at my writing as like more of like a producer role and i started like tracking sprints and everything so i was like i don't know it was interesting to like actually put like a structure on it and and not because i'm very like hard on myself in the sense of like if i don't write however much i feel like i should have then i beat myself up but then i'm like okay person who is you how much do you think you can write in the next two weeks and then you like break that out into like days or like however many um and then it's like you hit those goals and that little voice inside of me is like but you could have done more and i'm like no no no. these are the goals that you made (laughs) like we're good we're on track so that's nice to like see actual numbers so my anxiety doesn't go through the roof if that makes any sense. <laughs> I think so. I think that uh, to a lesser degree, NaNoWriMo does that for me, too. Like, Sorry, did you say NaNoWriMo? I did. Okay. Um, just in that, like, I can see the graph of how many words I should have today. And yeah. juxtaposing the graph of how many words I do have today. And then, you know, having all the math done out for me that's like, well, now you have to write this many words a day to get there is a a good way to push. 
Um, do you are you more of a discovery writer or a planning writer? Um, like by discovery, do you mean like do I just sit down and write? Yeah, sit down and write without like an outline. Sorry, my dog's barking. Uh, um, it sounded like yeah. an infant child in the background. <laughs> he just gets super whiny. Um, sorry, I'm off track. Yeah, I, I have. To, I feel like I don't think very well unless I'm sitting down and writing. Like I can sit there and like try to plan all day, and get really not, not really get anywhere. But if I just like sit down and start writing, it's like, it unlocks that part. I don't know. I think I. I think I just grew up writing so much that that was like became my method of working through problems. So I really do have to just sit there and and write to really figure out what I'm doing. I'm right there with you. I like that. I, I wish sometimes I wish that I could do more of just like sit down with a spreadsheet and be like, all right, act one, act two, act three. <laughs> Here's what happens. And then in the writing, get into like the, the muddy why of it. Uh, but every time I try to do that, I find myself getting bored. It's like, I'd rather just be writing act two right now instead of being halfway through act one. And I don't know like, if that's because the writing itself is boring or if it's because I know what's happening next that I'd rather be writing that. Yeah, I don't know. Because like, when you're planning, does it, always, does it feel like uninspired? Like if you just sit down and try to like plan what happens next? Does yeah. it seem boring to you? It kind of does. If I get more specific than like, well, at this point, his arm falls off. You know, like, oh, at this point, all the characters die. Yeah. If I if I get too specific or too granular, I might as well be writing. Yeah. Um, for some of my NaNoWriMo projects, I have broken them up into, like, parts or acts ahead of time, sort of as a way to make the word count feel more manageable and what I find is that if I'm trying to make a 50,000 word piece into five equal-ish size parts by about 7,000 words into that part, I start feeling weird about what's happening. Like in what sense? Um, sort of like I either feel like I'm way too close to the event that's going to kick off the next part or I'm way too far away from it and trying to figure out like okay how am I going to either like get my character across the country in 3,000 words or <laughs> take 3,000 words to get them across the street I never yeah. feel like I'm I'm where the pacing should be that makes sense yeah, it's, it, I think it's really hard to plan that it to that level since so much relies on like what you'd written before and understanding it. And you can't really understand it until you write it. Mm -hmm. What's your editing process like? I saw a tweet or two from you sort of lamenting parts of it. <laughs> I'm trying to think. I lament a lot. What was I... Do you remember what I was saying? Uh, yeah, you were... You were talking about how you made comments at, during like 
a previous paths through that no longer made any sense because they were like intentionally oh, vague. Yeah, I don't know what's wrong with me sometimes. I like because I was actually uh, doing a collab with somebody when that was happening, and I was like, "Ha ha!" Like Autumn in the future is gonna have no idea what this means, and I'm just like, "Why did I do that to myself?" <laughs> I'm like a trickster on myself, and it's not funny to present me. <laughs> But yeah, normally I don't, I'm not that stupid. Um, <laughs> I guess editing is like, it's always different. And like, I used to like really beat myself up, like, cause I'm super neurotic, but I used to beat myself up for having to write like earlier drafts. Cause I was just like, why can't you get it perfect? Like the first time. So it's like, cause that's not how writing works. That's not how like consciousness works um so trying to reframe that in the sense of like you had to write that shitty stuff to get to where you want to be um i would say i probably do about five or six drafts on average for every book i think that was about the same with the one i worked with uh christoph uh on girl like a bomb because he had a pretty big hand in like the editing because he's very like um I don't know the right word. Like high, he's like very like high level concepts, so he could see things in a way that like I'm down in the trenches, I can't necessarily. So that was like super helpful to be like. He would never like he or he would very rarely like go down in the sentence level and be like, or in the story and be like, I think Beverly should do this instead of this. But he would be like, I want this. He's like, I think something here should happen. Um and in this direction and then if I had the direction I was like okay I like I know what to write so that was really helpful but I know not for every project can you have an editor like that <laughs> yeah was that the first time you've had uh an editorial process like that yeah okay yeah because um before Girl Like a Bob I had two self-published books um and I did have people helping me but like they weren't professional editors mm -hmm. and then i and then i would hire somebody to like just clean it up like copy or how do you say it line edit yeah line edit yeah um but yeah i think one of the reasons girl like a bomb like flows so well is like because of the editing that christoph did and he could see like how each piece needed to go and if it was like moving too slowly or irrelevant or whatever is that a scary process though to like give somebody else so much um i don't know i don't want to say license because it's not necessarily license but <laughs> license over over what's going on in the story mm, no because i was always like He wasn't, like, invasive in the sense of, like, he wanted a particular kind of story. Like, he would saw what I'd written, and it seemed like he kind of knew, like, the direction I was trying to go. Okay. It, ne it never felt like somebody else was trying to, like, hijack it. I'm sure that would feel invasive <laughs> if yeah. that was the case. Yeah, I feel like you would know if that were the case. Um... Did you find that you 
um, like in in the writing or afterward even of Girl Like a Bomb, do you feel like you took anything away um, like as a person? If that question makes any sense at all? No, it makes sense. I'm thinking of how to answer that. Like yes, but like the way the ways in which it did is complicated. Um, so this is kind of like the first non-horror book I had written. Mm-hmm. Um, I really wanted to do something different because I was like sick of myself. Like I would write like I had established a style that was starting to. I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but it was like almost like I was parroting myself. It was like, it was like, it was like I was had looked at an Autumn Christian book and was trying to rewrite it, and I was just like, "This is fucking garbage." Yeah, um, <laughs> it's sort of um, like sense, like where where yeah. like Christopher Walken is now in his career. It's like, oh, he's just doing Christopher Walken now. Yeah, but with writing. Yeah, so I was. I was like essentially like I have built this very specific mythology of like the kind of things that I wrote and I was like I don't want to do that anymore like I want to write things that like interest me and not like be a part of a brand because I was super nervous because I was like well okay like this book is called Girl Like a Bomb the first book I ever published was called The Crooked God Machine and it was like a dystopian horror kind of bizarro but not really um it's like super dark kind of thing (laughs) so i was like the people who read that are gonna read this like self-actualization empowerment book that's like all pink and like it's about a girl having sex and just like fucking hate me but (laughs) i mean at the end of the day i was like this is this is what i want to write and then after i finished it i was like i think i want to go more in this direction because this feels this feels like more like the person I'm becoming and and not the person who just like writes cynical, sad horror, I suppose. I can see that. I, I, I did read Ecstatic Inferno before I read Girl Like a Bomb. And the, the difference was very stark to me. Yeah. Like pretty early on in Girl Like a Bomb, it's like, oh, this is something different. Um. I mean, like, you can definitely tell it's you, but um, it is noticeable that you were trying to do something different. I Also, in, like, the last 30 pages of the book, like, it was amazing to me how happy I felt. Like, I do not read books where the last 30 pages make me feel good, ever. Like, I... So that was, like, wonderful. Wonderful to me to, like have characters ride off into the sunset in the way that they do (laughs) that's Uh, that's good to hear because i i was really trying to hit that note without it feeling fake because i'm not used to writing happy endings (laughs) sure like i feel like all the anxieties that the character could have had i had while i was reading it um and then she was like after I had the anxiety, was dispelling them. It's like, nope, too bad. We're not going to worry about that right now. We're going to do this. It's like, what about that? Don't you have a responsibility? No, we're doing this now. (laughs) 
I, I like the way that that writing can do that too, where it takes your thought process and says, no, we're doing something else right now. Uh, and I don't know, like, I, I feel like the the self-actualization part of the book definitely wore off on me a little bit where um, it's like, oh yeah, like we do need to take care of ourselves and the people we love and not just like think about what our duties are all the time. Yeah, that was something I'm still trying to learn um, because, which is like, I guess was a good takeaway from writing that because like while I'm thinking about it, I'm always like very goal focused where I'm like, okay, I got to finish this book. I got to like write this article. I've got to like take care of these things, make sure it's all done. And then once I'm done, like I don't even like pause to breathe. I'm just like, okay, what's the next thing? But it's like, I feel like some people have this idea that especially somebody like Beverly, who's just like, I have a important thing to do. And like, I'm not saying I'm anywhere near like that. I just write stuff, but like, um, I have an important thing to do. So like, I can't waste a second because like other people need me. Um, but it's like the point, I feel like the point of helping other people is to let them like live their lives. So it's like at the end, you don't just, how do I articulate this? Um, it's like, once you fix something, you don't just go, okay, like onto the next, (laughs) onto the next thing to fix. It's like, you have to actually like enjoy it because otherwise, like, what's the point of fixing it? Yeah, I I definitely saw like an alternate universe of this book where she somehow managed to sleep with everybody and it just (laughs) made the world awful because nobody had to actually work for anything. And so like the self-actualization just wears off because it's like living as a process, you know, you don't just get better one day. You know, you don't yeah. just, like wake up and you're like, I'm not heartbroken anymore. Great. I'm going to go fall <laughs> in love now. Yeah. That's kind of something I'm writing about now. Cause I'm always interested in like, I think, I think about the place where most books end and it's sort of, it always feels like a liminal stage to me where it's like, okay, now it's heavily, uh, it's happily ever after, but then it's like, what's next? Like, I want to, I want to, read the book that's like after the ending uh so the next thing i'm working on is kind of like well what happens when like there's nothing to do but like be yourself like there's there's no there's no cancer we have to cure there's no um nobody really has to work for a living it's like what do you do at that point because like that point is like coming yeah i think whether we want it to or not um, so that's really something, and I don't, I don't even have answers for that, but that's something I want to explore. Yeah. I've had conversations like that before where it's like, okay, so what happens when AI does all the jobs? What do <laughs> right. we do? And I'm like, dude, I'm going to learn to paint. What are you talking about? What do we do? I'm not, I'm going to learn how to tap dance. <laughs> like all the, all these things I had a passing interest in. Oh man, those things are going to be my thing now. I think I think a lot of us will adjust surprisingly well. I think so too. Because I, I like some sometimes I sit there and I'm like, what did I do before the? What did people do before the internet? I'm like, the internet's been here twenty years. Like, 
<laughs> people obviously did other things. I think I think we'll adjust. Yeah. Sorry, I interrupted you. No, it's fine. I mean, I've I've had those conversations go on to the point where it's like, so what do we do when we've reached every corner of the universe and no one has to <laughs> die anymore? Because, like, that's an interesting question, too. Like, what do we do when we beat death and when we beat the time travel problem and we can communicate so far and so fast you never have to miss anybody, no matter how many light years away they are? Like, assu assuming we get to that point, what happens? Um, but, I think we play a lot of video games, yeah. honestly. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. I'll wake up my, my old WoW account and find find my cat that my hunter character had and 3d <laughs> print it or something what's interesting to me like just how analog uh my interests have become i find myself like wanting to learn how to play chess or watching lots of youtube videos on like how to paint miniatures for warhammer games that i don't even play and uh this this desire to like not be consumed by the bright blue light of certain types of media any longer. Yeah, I, I have noticed that. I think I th so when people talked about this before, I would sort of like think it was like a tinfoil hat thing, but like the way that we've structured the internet now is kind of like hijacked hijacking like our natural paths of of like stimulus and reward so i think there is one we don't really know what the consequences of that are going to be like long term like the people that are were born with like ipads and stuff are are, are still growing up um the people who are just born and like instagram is a thing um so yeah i think i don't i think i think i see a lot of people just like longing to return to yeah the analog like the body and the mind like actually connecting in space <laughs> uh at, at the same time uh i never handwrite anything <laughs> uh which which is interesting do you do you do any like handwriting or is it all typing not really it's all type I, yeah. it most most of it is typing i just I grew up typing like yeah there was like I, I would write in school but like it, it frustrates me that it, it's not as fast as a typewriter yeah I still can't keyboard. type as fast as I can think so that's uh, that frustration with writing is terrible also I'm left-handed <laughs> and so I would always get the uh just the graphite the back of my hand just covered in, in black after writing for a long time. Oh, that sucks. <laughs> it was awful. Just terrible. Like, mildly inconvenient, but but very terrible <laughs> at the same time. Um, I remember I got, like, a callus on my hand because I wrote so much with the pencil. I don't know if that ever happened to you, but, like, you get, like, hand cramps. <laughs> yeah, I got hand cramps. I hold... I, my penmanship is, is bad or weird or something, so my my ring finger, the, like, left side of it gets, like, worn away and, like, peeled away from the nail if I write too long, just, like, the way that I hold 
a pen or a pencil. Yeah, that doesn't sound fun. So it, it, be, it becomes physically painful. Uh, there's one thing I, I've been like meaning to experiment with. My wife at one of her older jobs got this notepad that you write on with a special pen and you I think it has like a USB port in it like a micro USB port in the notebook and you plug it into your computer and it loads it up to a Google Drive sheet like it takes the handwriting and, and turns it into uh, text on a, in a Word document I've seen those I've been interested in potentially trying it because yeah like the computer can be distracting but I, I don't know. I haven't seen like some, I haven't tried it yet, but like most of the reviews I see are like, they're kind of hit or miss. Mm -hmm. Well, I, part of me wants to do something weird, like some inside the castle type stuff where I'm like just <laughs> doing like automatic writing that's like half discernible English characters and then just see how the whatever program they use tries to fix it. <laughs> um, there was a, a poet who did a lot of speech to text stuff while having sports on loudly in the background and, and while having what on like sports or TV. Oh, sports. Yeah. Yeah. I think that'd be interesting too. Um, That's funny. I mean, all the writing of yours I've read is like character and story based and <laughs> some, Sometimes I wish I could write like that more, but do you ever get those like wild hairs to do like surrealist games or anything like that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. And then I just don't say anything. Um, what was the one I used to do? I think it was called cut up. It was the one that Burroughs did where he like, I, I kind of modified it though. Cause um, I would take, like a section that I had written and then I would take something from Wikipedia. Like I think the one that the last one I did was like some Wikipedia article about insects. And then I think you could find a, there was some kind of app on the internet that would scramble it up. So you could take two different sections and then it would like add this like weird element of it. And you could like get new ideas out of what was happening. I thought that was fun to do because sometimes i do run out of ideas and i'm just like what the fuck do i do <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah that, that does sound like a fun thing to, that that's not something i've done a lot of a lot of the weird experiments i've been doing lately have had to do a lot with just rolling dice like setting parameters for myself and then rolling dice and uh lamenting no one will play dungeons and dragons with me and then <laughs> and then like taking the numbers <laughs> that that come up and, and saying no like, one will play dungeons and dragons with me either it's oh, sad well there we go we should... <laughs> so like what are the parameters for the oh case? i mean things as simple as like settings characters sometimes I... or or even like um timelines uh, so like i'll roll a six-sided die and be like all right this piece is gonna have you know, one to six different timelines in it. And so I kind of decide for myself whether that's like parallel realities or if I'm like doing a Tarantino sort of thing where I tell the story from like six different points in time. Uh, and it hasn't led to anything good, <laughs> but it's 
fun to uh, violently restrict what you normally are able to freely do. Yeah, I I think restrictions can actually make you more creative. Have you? Yeah. What's that? Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, I just saying because you're reduced to like those parameters. Mm Mm-hmm. Do you ever, or have you seen the Five Obstructions documentary with Lars von Trier? No, there's no. a documentary. Yeah, <laughs> about him. Uh, okay. it's. Let's see, it's him and another guy. Um, hold on, the Five Obstructions. Oh, it's him and Jurgen Leth, who oh, did a, a short film a long time ago like an existentialist thing and so Lars von Trier had him do five different uh remakes of it using different obstructions and it was interesting to watch it was is actually the most like humanizing thing I've ever seen from Lars von Trier because normally you just hear about how he like gets naked during film like while <laughs> you know he'll like yell action yeah. and then just start taking his clothes off to agitate people or, I don't know, let's say that he admires Hitler in, like, a weird, non-joke sort of way at Cannes and get himself kicked out. I didn't hear about that one. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> if, if you go... I actually... Go ahead. Sorry, what? No, I actually really like a lot of his movies, but I didn't really know that he was so controversial until recently. Yeah, if you go through his his personal trivia page on IMDb, there's um, a documentation of all the times he said stupid things. I know he had a big drug problem, <laughs> and I think a lot of the things he said that were stupid were while he had his drug problem, which makes sense. That would make sense. Um, uh, but yeah, like the Depression trilogy is really good. Um, when I was talking to Lisa about Girl Like a Bomb, Nymphomaniac came up, uh, which I found was interesting because I didn't attach it to Nymphomaniac all that much. And maybe it was just tonally it was different. Um, that, like, I had a hard time. Like, even as she's, like, young and hunting for guys, like, I guess that's sort of similar to the first part of the first part of Nymphomaniac. Um, it just like felt different to me. It didn't feel. I felt reckless, but it didn't feel quite so intentionally self-destructive as the character in *Infomaniac* sort of framed it. Yeah, because um, that movie was definitely like an inspiration. But I, when I take inspiration like that, I try to like just find the core of like what I found interesting about it, which was like taking the scope of like or the lens of like sex to like explore a character i didn't so yeah like tonally and like the the stuff that happens is like quite different i just like like the framing of it and Mm -hmm. i also like the movie beyond that yeah i think the movie's great aside from shia labeouf's awful british accent (laughs) i didn't like the ending either i think i've already talked about this yeah you talked about on her podcast I, i felt like it was lackluster as well and I don't know, felt like maybe insensitive to ace people, but how so? Um, well, because he, that uh, 
the scars guard initially is like oh you don't have to worry about me i'm asexual and then at the end he's like i'm gonna have sex with you now oh i see yeah i could see how that would be interpreted badly like especially in in the way that he like she says no and he says but you've done it with everybody else like (laughs) i i feel like he would just be like oh okay yeah or like he he wouldn't even initiate it in the way that he did he if anything I would imagine he would have just been like, well, I've never had sex. You seem to know what you're doing, maybe. But I don't know. Like, it felt so out of place. It felt like a bad twist. It felt like he didn't know how to end the movie. Like, Mm -hmm. that's what it felt like. Because, like, everything leading up to that point, like, it didn't really fit with the theme or anything at all. (laughs) Yeah. It was just like, what? Yeah, absolutely. It speaking of of Lars von Trier's drug problem that the nymphomaniac <laughs> movie was the first movie he wrote uh after getting sober and i read an interview and he was talking about how terrified he was because he's he'd never written sober before so i'm willing that's interesting i'm willing to give him a pass yeah seeing as how it's better than i would say 80% of movies that's fine mhm <laughs> yeah yeah, I mean, like, Melancholia sticks in my head, like, simply for the ending. Yeah. Yeah, that was really Like, good. The, fir- the first half was a completely different movie from the second half. But... Yeah, that one's really interesting. I'm like, I never want to actually see this movie again. Oh, God, no. <laughs> but I really, like, it sticks in my mind as something, like, special. Mm-hmm. I'm, it would be interesting to go back in like 20 years and watch it because part of the reason why I think it was so successful is because the the graphics at the time felt really good. And so maybe it will diffuse it for me if I watch it in my 40s. And it's like, oh, nope, that looks bad. I don't know because I watched it a couple of years ago. When did it come out? Oh, I don't remember. let's see. If I can spell it right. It came out in uh, 2011. Okay. Yeah, it was a couple of years. I don't know. Maybe maybe the magic will be gone. I don't know. I know that was the case for Event Horizon, uh, the, the horror movie. I remember... People my age either having watched it very young or people who watched it in the 80s when it came out talking about how terrifying it was. And I watched it when I was like 13 or 14 or something. It's like, this isn't scary at all. <laughs> like maybe if it looked better, it would be more terrifying because it, you know, the big part of it being like hell in a spaceship kind of relies on it feeling like hell. And it didn't to me. I haven't seen that one, <clears throat> but... Is, so, like, the thing is, like, the, um, what do you call it? The special effects just, like, aren't that great. Yeah, and they're not bad. They're just, you know, 80s. I think, right. I think, I think there was, like, early computer graphics stuff where they probably could have just done practical. Um, but. Yeah, because you mentioned the hell thing. Because, like, have you seen Jacob's Ladder? Uh, yeah. Because I feel like, isn't that kind of from the same time period? I think so. But yeah, like all the special effects are like organic. So like even like watching it and 
2015 or whatever, it still feels really creepy. Yeah, that movie was was really gross. Event Horizon actually came out seven years after that in, in 97. So I guess it didn't come out in the yes. 80s. Maybe that speaks to something about the movie that I thought it was an 80s movie. <laughs> but I mean, like, The Thing holds up. And that's, like, terrifying and awful. So I don't know. Maybe maybe it was set and setting. Maybe watching Event Horizon with all my buddies was not the way to watch it. Maybe watching it alone in a dark room was the correct way to do it. <laughs> setting is important. <laughs> um, we're coming up on about an hour here. Is there any, uh, as I check my, my notes, is there anything you wanted to bring up? Do you have any axes to grind? Any manifestos to publish? <laughs> Uh, if everyone can just send money to my PayPal, no. Do it. <laughs> I don't know. I'm trying to think. I think we covered a lot of stuff. Um, Girl Like a Bomb is coming out at the end of March. Yes. And you can also pre-order it on Clash Books. If I didn't say that, Lisa would probably murder me. Yeah. De- <laughs> definitely uh, pre-order the book. I know I have. Um yeah, the only the only way people would be hearing this before the book actually came out um, is if I get any Patreon subscribers, which doesn't seem likely at this point. So, uh, if you are listening to it, thank you for being a Patreon supporter and go pre-order the <laughs> book. And um, I'll probably say in the intro that people should read the book before we talk about it even though we don't go into spoilers too much it's just useful i feel um but if you haven't yet if you've made it this far and the book is out and you haven't bought it and read it go buy it and read it it is in my top three books that i have read thus far this year and that's uh not me shilling for my guest (laughs) (laughs) That that is actually the case I mean, it really is the best book ever, and that's me shilling. There we go. (laughs) So this is chapter one of Girl Like a Bomb. We took his truck out to his secret place near the creek littered with beer cans. He parked in the trees, and together we climbed out onto the rocks. Their shadows hunched over the fire of his lighter as he lit another stolen menthol. He chuckled while he told me a story about pawning his sister's antique dolls and his mother's Tiffany's lamp for weed money. He wouldn't let me drink his four loco. Not at first. You're just a baby, he said, refusing to look over at me as he smoked. You'll black out, and I don't feel like carrying you home. He didn't even look at me when he said I reminded him of Daenerys from Game of Thrones. The mother of dragons. I thought at first he meant because of my pale hair, long and unkempt, but then he said, You have a face that's so soft, but it's a softness like fire. He finally let me take a sip of his four loco. I grimaced and had to struggle to swallow. Told you, he said. And don't roll your eyes at me like that. Mmm, tastes like fermented gasoline, I said. My favorite. I needed to lose my virginity. I was already 15 and I wanted someone bad. I knew Spider was bad because he had a spit cup in the cab of his truck and thin white scars on his forearms he refused to talk about. We locked eyes for the first time in fourth period, his teeth hard set, his stare like the sensation of chewing ice. 
He was older than me, but still stuck in sophomore classes. I asked to borrow a pencil. He reached into his duster jacket and handed me one while time slowed and focused to a point in space between me and him. You might look pretty if you wore your hair down, he said when I took the pencil and his tongue touched his front row of teeth. I couldn't stop thinking about him since. There were perfectly nice boys at Monomount High I could have lost my virginity to. Boys who would tell me I look perfect with their chest about to cave in, who would straighten my hair on the pillow afterward, smiling at the way my shoulder clenched. But they didn't have the bruised knuckles, burnt with stories, or a duster jacket with the arms held together with pens. I didn't look at those other boys and felt like at any step I'd sink underwater, backwards, bound in chains. I read once that humans can't help but seek out excitement. It's why we first made fire and invented the printing press and slept with foreigners on the other side of large bodies of water. I liked that idea, because it made me think that even a terrible mistake like spider was cosmic destiny. Something imprinted into my DNA. Something calling to me across the waves, through the window, after my parents had gone to sleep. Outside, wearing nighttime like leather, his neck lit up in oily porch floodlights, he looked good in starshine in 2 a.m. time, even with his stick-and-poke tattoo of an eye on his neck, his combat boots held together with duct tape. The way he tried not to smile made me smile, and after I pulled on my hoodie and my sneakers and climbed out the window, his hand twitched as if he wanted to reach out to me. But he didn't, and this made me smile even more. Breathe in. Air feels cool. Breathe out. Air is cooler. That night, my chest felt like a cavern, and I could fit the whole world inside. How'd you find this place? I asked. It's my secret place, he said. Do you bring girls here a lot? You're the only girl here, he said. I stretched and scooted a little closer to him. I yawned as an excuse to try to show him the cute outfit I wore, but he continued to stare straight ahead as he lit another cigarette. I crawled across the rocks and slipped my hands in between the chain of his crossed legs. He opened his knees when I leaned into him as if inviting me in. I kissed him in a halo of nicotine smoke. He gave me another sip of his for loco as he cradled my waist between his knees. I felt high off our pr proximity, like the smell and sensation of him would make me float away if the wind blew in the wrong direction. I know why you don't have a boyfriend, he said. Because I wear my hair up, I asked. No. It became silent, and I knew he wasn't going to tell me why. I brought condoms, I said. He gave a tearse nod. I didn't realize it'd be so awkward, with both of us fumbling for our clothes in the dark without speaking, without touching, breathing out cool air like shiny oily slicks. Nobody ever talked about that moment before the act, when zippers got stuck and your lip gloss rubbed off on the inside of your sweater, when you laughed nervously because you had to do a weird shimmy to get out of your tights, and finally, when all the clothes were off, and all that was left was the interminable space between two bodies. There was holding a breath, like the next noise should be something tremendous and not just the crinkling of a condom wrapper. You're a virgin, aren't you? He asked. I spread my jacket on the rocks and lay down. I shivered and the creak gr noise grew to a roar. I hadn't noticed before how cold it was. No, I said. Yeah, you are, he said. I can tell. You think you're being cool, but I can see it. I fumbled with a condom. He plucked it out of my hands. I'll take care of that. Just touch me, he said. Where? You know where. <laughs> At least I hope you do. He didn't take his eyes off my chest, although he had such an intense stare, it was like he looked through me instead of at me. My nipples hardened, and I felt the rocks underneath me. I reached out, unable to control my trembling, and began touching his cock. A swallow stuck in my throat. I thought at first that he'd remain limp. I couldn't get him up, and I'd remain a virgin forever. But then after a good half minute, I felt his cock harden. His hand traced my ass and my hips. Then he touched me between my legs, and I flinched at his cold fingers. 
What are you doing? I asked. Trying to get you to relax, he said. Virgins, you have to teach them everything. He pushed his cock inside of me in one fluid motion. One second I'm a virgin, and then suddenly I'm not. It didn't hurt like I thought it would. It was more like a pressure, a fullness, stretching inside of me. He went slowly at first, until I found myself holding breath. I couldn't see his face in the dark, but I could see the place between my hips and his that I thought resembled an abandoned alien landscape. Here, he said, get on top. He rolled me over. I felt awkward and unsure of how to move. All the videos I'd seen couldn't really prepare me for the moment. I was looking down at another human being, his cock inside of me, feeling split in two, but also sewn together. Like this, he said, and got at my hips. Like dancing. It was really nothing like dancing. Something began to build in me. I thought it must have been an orgasm, but this wasn't like any orgasm I'd ever had. It started in my stomach and swirled downwards, heated, a little warm bundle of nerves inside the bracing cold. There was an intense pressure, and even when I clenched my hips together or shifted, it didn't relent. And strangely, Spider felt it too. When I tried to stop, he grabbed me again by the hips. The whites of his eyes grew like cracks of light through a darkened gate. Tears welled in my own eyes, although I wasn't sure why. I saw the moon in double, shimmering through water, reflected off his pale chest. I'd fingered myself before. I had my first orgasm riding a washing machine, and even bought a few sex toys off the internet. Although sex ed in middle school was all bananas and latex and warnings about SDs, I watched enough porn to fill in the gaps. I even read part of a PDF of the Kama Sutra, although I didn't really get it. But I wanted to be ready for this moment. There was no way I could have prepared. This definitely wasn't a normal orgasm. This was an unbearable friction, a dry plane about to catch fire, a swelling, growing, heaving, pulsating liquid swell inside of me that was louder and bigger than everything I'd ever experienced before. Nothing could have prepared me for the feeling of my body rumbling like an earthquake, turning my bones into tectonic plates. I held my breath. And I exploded. A depth charge of intense pleasure ran through me. It spiraled out in all directions, not just into my vagina, but up through my heart, my throat, and down into my toes, moving and pulsing frenetic golden waves. It buzzed on the top of my skin, but also deep in my organs. My pressurized blood it froze in my throat like black ice and seared my eyeballs. It licked the edges of my hair, curling through my scalp like fire. Could, could someone die from having sex? Had I pushed a button that was the bomb inside of me currently making its way to my vulva and my heart, I'd never heard of anything like that happening. I thought I was breathing, but I couldn't be sure. Maybe this was a rare form of sex-induced brain damage? If at the moment someone had asked me my name, my address, my birthday, I wouldn't have been able to answer. I'd become a frisson ball of nuclear-level sex energy that couldn't contain a single coherent thought for longer than a fraction of a second. God, surely I should have heard about something like this. Yet for a few moments, I couldn't hear anything except the rush of my own blood. I looked down, expecting to see my organs leaking out of my vagina or a hole blown straight through my stomach. Maybe I had even seen a spider's corpse below me, his skull, his, his cock still wrecking inside of me, his eyes dissolved into glowing goo, and his tongue swelling in his mouth like a slug. But I was intact, and so was Spider. There was nothing missing. No injury. Just smooth skin and moon glow. Spider grabbed one of my wrists and I realized he was speaking to me, trying to reach me through the hissing scream of my body. After a few seconds, the noise subsided, and the flush of lightning went down to a low tremble. What was that, I asked, when I could finally hear again. He spoke, his voice thin. Don't stop. Don't stop.